0: there. So, with that, we're moving on in our study a little bit. So, if you'll take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of 2 Kings, once again, 2 Kings, this time chapter 23. We've covered chapter 22 so far, we're going to jump into chapter 23. I'll be reading verses 1 through 25. 2 Kings 23, verses 1 through 25. And I would invite you, if you're able, uh, to stand with me, please, for the reading of God's holy word. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of Yahweh, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of Yahweh. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of Yahweh all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of Yahweh outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of Yahweh where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua the governor of the city which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of Yahweh in Jerusalem but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance to the house of Yahweh by the chamber of Nathan-Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire, and the altars of the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made, in the two courts of the house of Yahweh, he pulled down and broke in pieces, and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem, to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the Asherim and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the temples there on the mount, and he sent and took the or the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of Yahweh, that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Then he said, What is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, It's the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking Yahweh to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel, And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. And the king commanded all the people keep the passover to the Yahweh your God as it is written in this book of the covenant for no such passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah but in the 18th year of king Josiah this passover was kept to Yahweh in Jerusalem moreover Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of Yahweh. Before him there was no king like him who turned to Yahweh with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Please be seated. Well, that's quite a chapter, isn't it? Not? We've been looking at what uh, Josiah has been doing up uh, to this point. And mostly what we see in chapter 2 is the means by which Josiah becomes motivated to do something. He looks around, first of all, and sees the house of God in disrepair and in neglect and is determined to do something about that, and begins to do that work. Then he has uh, <coughs> read the book of the covenant, whether it was the whole Torah, or simply the book of Deuteronomy. He has read the law of Moses, and in the process of, of that, then becomes incredibly convicted far beyond just the fact that the temple needed a paint job and needed some repairs. He became convicted in his own heart about how he and the entire nation had abandoned the God who had made them, established them, delivered them, and uh, entered into covenant with them, and they had broken faith, broken covenant with their God. So uh, it behooves us to think uh, highly does it not of the place wherein uh, we have a, a testimony for the Lord, and be thinking about what that testimony says to those without, as well as when we come in. Uh, are are our hearts lifted up to heaven, or are we more consumed concerned about lights with noisy fans? Right. But we want to get rid of those distractions and we want to have our hearts fixed on it. Yes, and that's a great place to start revival, to be thinking about the external matters of coming into God's presence because His witness is here. But it can't stop there. It has to address our hearts and the sinfulness of our own condition, <coughs> our tendency to, to walk our own way, our tendency to rebel against our God and to find conviction by His word. Yes, not to neglect His house, but even more importantly, not to forsake him, not to rebel against his law, not to be indifferent to uh, his judgments and the the consequences that he says will fall upon us if we continue to walk in our sins so that's all well and good uh, we've we've established that we want to uphold the honor of our God in the world and and we recognize our sins and the necessity of turning from them in our own hearts. So then, you know, what do we do beyond that? It, that's not the end of revival. Remember many years ago uh, when I was in high school um, I had been living kind of a double life. At <laughs> church and in certain circles I was you know, almost a hate, no, not really, but um, had a certain reputation for being, you know, uh, an upright, honorable young man, but I was not in my heart. And in certain other circles, in my actions, it was clear that that was not happening. And And there was a series of events. I won't take time here because it doesn't really matter. But the Lord started to work on my heart. And uh, one of the things that occurred, it was just a series of events with some friends of mine with whom I should not have been uh, so chummy with. Um, Just some of the ridiculous, foolish kinds of stuff that they were saying and doing. I was like, this is just this is dumb. I don't want to be associated with this. And so I left that group and went and started hanging out with some, some uh, other guys that were more upright, um, that um, were more uh, faithful in the things of the Lord, um, at least externally. You know? So I started doing that. Of course, my other friends showed very quickly what great friends they were and turned on me. And which just confirmed in my mind that yeah, I didn't need to be over there, but ultimately it was an external turning over a new leaf, just changing my ex, you know, my my practices and what was seen. It wasn't until that summer following that that uh, the Lord um, convicted my heart through. Uh, I went to a, a revival meeting and the gentleman uh, that was preaching this uh, name I can never remember uh, but uh, I hope to meet him again someday uh, the Lord used him in a, a message on the holiness of God to help me recognize that all of my external changes were not genuine revival that I was not holy I was not walking in in, in honor before Him. And in fact, I was really uh, not even truly redeemed, even though I had believed I was since I was 10. And the Lord convicted me and changed my heart, gave me new life. And I rejoice in that. And I came to understand that all of those external things were not the same as actually walking in a committed faithful, covenantal relationship, though at the time I didn't have the theological chops to even think about it in those terms. I just knew I wasn't right with God. And that's what we start to see here in chapter 23 with what Josiah is doing. He doesn't just stop with the, you know, painting the outside, putting lipstick on the pig and being content with it. He starts cleaning house. And of course, he's a king. So, some of the things that he does, um, I am not going to say, all right, now, let's all leave this place and start going and uh, trashing every false god that we see out there, uh, you know, grinding it to powder, you know, burning and. and you know kinds of things. We don't have that authority. We don't have that kind of st- societal structure that would tolerate that very well. But there's spiritual principles that are invo- involved here that are motivating what Josiah is doing so that in our circles, in our context, there are things that we can do both in society, but even more particularly within our own hearts because idols are not just those things that are stuck up in niches of a wall. We have a lot of idols within our own hearts that uh, we need to have a slash-and-burn approach to getting rid of. But we're all too often a little too timid or a little reluctant to actually get serious about standing in a right relationship with God that is according to covenant. So verses 1 through 3, the king sent... And all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem are gathered to him. So he has the authority, he calls everybody together. And then he says, uh, well, then he, he goes up to the house of Yahweh. He goes to the place where God had said his name would dwell forever. And the place where you could say is the ground zero of offense against the holy God. And perhaps you caught it as we read through this at all of the garbage that prior kings had put in there. All in the name of worshiping God and others. We'll see that a little bit. Um, I'll go ahead and mention it just in case I don't quite get to it today. We'll see. Um, In chapter 13... There's a couple of verses that are quite interesting. That certainly they apply in that uh, that particular situation. Or I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting way too uh, way ahead of myself. Not First Kings thirteen. This is what happens when you skip ahead in your notes and forget what you're doing. Second Kings chapter seventeen, just a few chapters back. Second Kings chapter seventeen, in verse uh, thirty-three we read this phrase, So they feared Yahweh, but also served their own gods after the manner of the nations from, whom, from among whom they had been carried away. And then you look down in verse 41, same kind of thought. So these nations feared Yahweh and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did. So they do to this day the tendency to say, yes, we want to worship God and we want to add all these other things too because it's really cool, because we want to be like the other nations, because there's some benefit um, either monetarily or from a social perspective or just in my own heart, it just feels right. But Yahweh hates it, this syncretistic view of, uh, of worshiping Him. When uh, I've done a lot of work in uh, the land of Bolivia, and one of the things that uh, was very striking there that you don't see quite as much of here in the United States because uh, this uh, regards the Church of Rome. Uh, the Church of Rome in the United States tends to behave itself a little bit more, tends to be a little bit more sophisticated. All of that comes off in, in other countries of the world, where they tend to hold sway. And Bolivia was a perfect example. So there would be statues of of uh, Mary around, and um, all around the foot of those statues, um, you would see incense being burned, uh, not not uh, in the, the Roman Catholic fashion, but in the pagan fashion, burning feathers, burning... Um, llama carcasses burning all kinds of things. And uh, one of the reasons, I, I remember the one that was particularly striking was they had a lot of high places on the hills and you would find little burned patches all over the place where people had done all these sacrifices. This is a Roman Catholic country but these folks would, were covering their bases. And uh, one particular place that was a particularly holy spot, the Roman Church had gone ahead and erected a statue of Mary out there so that she'd make sure she'd get her due while everybody else was doing the same thing. And that was just littered with, around the base of it with all kinds of other sacrifices. Very syncretistic. We're just going to cover all the bases. Make sure that we don't... Kind of like in in, uh, Athens, right? When Paul goes in there and he looks around and they've got all the statues everywhere. And just to cover their bases, they've got one to the unknown God. It's that kind of thinking. And we think, yeah, well, glad we don't do that anymore. And yet, the Western church is filled with all kinds of things that have nothing to do with the worship of the one true and living God. And it's something that we all need to be thinking about. And I'm not saying this to say, look, we're, we're totally pure. We've got to look at our own hearts, our own practices, and think, what are we truly worshiping? Are we worshiping the name on the sign out there? Are we worshiping our status in the community? Are we worshiping... You know, all of those can have a, a semblance of... There's, a, there's honor in that name. It's important to have a testimony. Are we worshiping uh, the, the, the pleasures and comforts that we want to have? You know, when you go, when you go, uh, for those of you that traveled overseas, particularly in third world countries, developing countries, um, you you know what I'm talking about. I remember worshiping with a church in Rwanda uh, in their church building, which was made out of mud brick that uh, was really only a parapet about two feet high that went around. That was the footprint. There were no walls. There was no roof. But that was their church. How many of us would go regularly to attend church in such a place? How many in, you know, in Western society are more concerned about the comfort of, well, the South 40 than we are um, the conviction of our hearts? And yet people who have served Christ in difficult places and in a difficult countries throughout the centuries, in, whether it's in, in caves or in forests, or whether they're freezing or they're baking, whatever it is, uh, I remember worshiping there in Rwanda with those folks. Now, of course, I don't speak the language. Maybe they complain among themselves. But uh, to hear them sing, you would have never thought that they had any complaint whatsoever. It was pretty glorious, so there's lots of things that we can value more than the Lord, even uh, among those of us who think that we are uh we are the people and truth shall die with us. Let it not be. So here we have the king sending. And he comes to the house of the Lord. Notice that the revival that has been going on already, has, where did it start? Maybe I should put it this way. With whom did it start? It started with the priests and the king. Particularly the king, who's in a position to really do something about it. If we want to know revival of our hearts, and the the men and I prayed about this before we came out here, that revival in our in our body in our midst needs to start with us. There's much that uh, you could. There's a lot of lot of history about revivals in this country and in other places that um, the, what is, at least what is called revival starts often seems to start at the grassroots level. But every time it does that, to my recollection in history, there's usually a boast in that, that the leadership's not involved. And that the leadership event, uh, or, uh, or if they are, it's that they just kind of hop on the, on the uh, coattails of... of uh, The laity and they're carried along, but if you look at the the revivals where that is the case, and it's quite a few times, um, it's you. I believe you will find it uh, pretty common that those revivals, or I should say, the effects of those revivals, don't really last. The lasting revivals are when. The leadership gets their act together by God's grace with the Lord. Because it's in, with the leadership, there's actually structures with which to be able to do something beyond just, you know, get excited and be determined to individually change. When you look at revivals that are led by godly ministers and leaders in the church, the effects tend to be much longer-lasting. Um, even you know, generations later, the effects are still known. Here we have... And it's not to say that the Lord can't do it the other way around, okay? But the pattern that we have here is that it starts with the leadership and then goes from there. That Also, if you think about... Um, um, David in Psalm 133, that wonderful psalm that speaks of the unity of God's people. Where does, how, how does, when people dwell together in unity, where does that start, according to David? It start, it's like the anointing uh, upon the head of Aaron that drips down, it's like the dew at the top of Mount Hermon that spreads its blessings downward. And we, as leaders in this church, need to be willing to say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, start your revival with me. How committed am I to, to uh, uh, being, being, walking properly before God? How intense is our grief over sin? We need to lead by example, and certainly Josiah does this. As he recognizes that he is God's king who stands in covenant before God with a particular role to defend God's law before and uphold it uh, uh, among the people, that covenantal leadership that Josiah is exhibiting here is calling others to restoration. So this he's not content to just say, well... Um, I'm going to be right with God. Now, you know, if I take this too far, if I get too excited about this, I am going to upturn the whole society. People are going to be angry at me. Economically, we could have some serious downturn of things. Um, Boy, you know, we want to have peace. So I want to be really careful about having peace. Don't want to upset that. And all too often, I would say that the reason that the Western Church has lost so much of its fervor and so much of its impact in society is because it was too willing to shut its mouth and content itself with being holy within its own walls and never addressing the world out there. For whatever reason... If I start talking about sin too much and start talking about repentance too much, I might have people leave. People won't, maybe they won't stay in the church, and it would be grievous if it'd be grievous if some of you left because you didn't want to hear about sin, you didn't want to hear about repentance. That would grieve us terribly, but not because of the practice of doing what God has told us to do, but because of the evidence that um, there's a spiritual battle going on, and. And it has its casualties. We have to do what God has laid out for us to do in his word and to say the things that he's told us to say in his word. And Josiah does this. He calls everybody to come. And they come. And it's because of his love for the word. Look at that in... in um, The latter part of verse 2. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of Yahweh. Think back to chapter 22. Hilkiah finds the scroll. He hands it to Shaphan, who reads it. And is no doubt trembling in his sandals when he does. And then he takes it to the king. And he reads it to the king. And when the king hears those words, he is crushed by the conviction that he and his nation are in rebellion against God, And something has to be done about it. And and then Josiah, I love this. Remember how it went? Hilkiah found it. Doesn't say whether he did anything with it, as far as reading it. Hands it to Shaphan, who reads it. And then Shaphan, for himself, then Shaphan reads it to Josiah. Instead of just handing it to Josiah so he would read it. But now, who's reading it? Josiah reads it in the hearing of the people. This book that had shredded his complacency and his sense of... Of uh, settled settled rule. He'd been, been king for a while, 18 years. But because of his love for the Lord and the love for his word, he reads this in turn to others. And that covenantal and it's it's about the covenant. And I'm emphasizing that because this is called the what? The book of the covenant. Yeah, this is all about walking in relationship with God. Revival, again, is not just about an ex- external changes. It is about a renewal of relationship with a holy God. And a relationship that's on His terms. A covenant relationship. A, a relationship that has with it blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. All within the context of the promises of a holy God. And he's the one who calls the shots. He's the one who sets the terms of the covenant. And Josiah knows this. And so as he reads it to the people, all the hearings, in their hearing, all the words uh, that uh, are in 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 that scroll, it doesn't tell us right here at this particular moment, at this verse, of the people's reaction. You, you see something of that reaction down at the end of verse 3. But right here, I don't know. I, I, I can see it in my mind's eye as he's reading this. Kind of, you have to think that the people got really quiet as they were listening to a, an account of what they should have been doing. And knew they hadn't been, and what they should not have been doing, and what they had been doing. So, that love for the Word of God, you know, our speaking to the the elders and the leadership here a moment ago, and gentlemen, of course, our job is not just to go let's rally the troops and and be holy and. Be godly. Um, It's according to God's word and it has to be more than just a pragmatic we want to be a a better church, we want to have a better testimony. It has to be motivated by our love for the word of God. And then it starts with us and then we call others to respond as well. Because this... This uh, reading of the word is all built upon all that conviction that Josiah had felt as the, uh, as the word had been read to him. And he did not just brush it aside. But he took it to heart. And I love what we see here in uh, verse 3. Verse <coughs> 3. Josiah stands there by one of the pillars, um, kind of of to the entrance. This is, of course, the house of God is the place where the covenant relationship in that day was most clearly and vividly seen through the sacrifices, the incense, and the, the priesthood, and all those things there, and the. The pillars there by the door would be is like the entrance into this relationship. That's why Josiah stands by one of those pillars, and it says that he makes a covenant before Yahweh to walk after Yahweh to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all of his soul. What'd you, what would you think? If the current leadership in Washington would stand on the steps of the White House or on the steps of the Capitol building and confess their sins before God and commit publicly to walk with God, to walk after Him, to follow Him, to walk in obedience to Him, and to make the commitment before God that you were willing to do that no matter what the consequences were with all of your heart, soul, and mind. What do you think this society would do to such a president or Speaker of the House or Supreme Court Justice or anybody? What do you think they'd do? Everything in this society these days is built upon corruption and the profitability of wickedness. Do you think that'd be a little earth-shattering? That's what Josiah did. He was bucking decades of godless, as in, true god free of the true god idolatry and worship and all that goes with that and he stood up there exposed and alone on the on the steps of the temple and said i've been wrong god is right and i will follow him no matter what with all my heart soul and mind in that making of a covenant that promise Was in those days the uh, to to make a covenant, the actual Hebrew there means to cut a covenant. It's not clear here whether he did so with a you know by sacrifice with blood, but this was a sober thing, recognizing that if he didn't, if he failed to do this, he knew that he was. culpable and liable to the penalty of death. Pretty amazing thing, isn't it? That for this king of Israel to do. So it took some real humility before God. It also took humility before the people. How hard is it for us in leadership to admit that we're wrong? And I'm not just speaking of leadership in the church. I just mean, if you're in a position of leadership, how hard is it to say to those that are under your authority, I was wrong? It's difficult. It may seem nearly impossible. How will I maintain my position? How, how, how will anybody respect me after this? And yet, when you look at this account here, and all the stuff that Josiah does, I mean, this makes the the uh, kind of revivals that people look at now seem like I don't know what you know child's play. This is an upending of everything in society, and yet the people are going. There's there's no rebellion on the part of the people here. He couldn't have done all of this if the people had mounted up an armed uh, rebellion against him. They followed his leadership, clearly respecting him because he had courage and humility. This, and, and, and the humility comes out of his recognition of the relationship covenantally before his God and courage in the, in the face of uh, the people, But notice here that he doesn't, when he stands up there, he does not begin with saying, all right, I'm making this covenant uh, for all of you. This is a personal covenant that he makes before God publicly. He knows that the renewal had to start with him in his own heart. And that faithfulness then, again, in the covenantal context, encourages others to renew as well. So he, again, leads by example. Look at the latter part of verse 3. To perform, he he makes this covenant, to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book, and all the people joined in that covenant. That is revival. When our hearts are truly changed before God, things begin to change in our lives as well. That's that's why the thesis of this whole little mini series here is that genuine revival produces genuine results. And those results are, are genuine because they begin in the reality of our hearts. It's easy to put on good works for a little while. It's easy to turn over a new leaf and reassociate with other people. Oh, I might have, you know, some discomfort here and there, a little awkwardness here and there, but relatively speaking, those external changes are pretty easy to do. It's much harder to really deal with rooting out the sins of our own hearts and getting real about who we are truly before God, but genuine genuine revival does exactly that. Well, we're going to do one more week. Um, I actually thought I might do all of this, but no but that's okay. When we think about revival in terms of the covenant and as if we think about it in terms of covenant renewal and we'll close with this thought. The thing about a covenant is that ultimately at the at the at the the bottom line of every covenant is the concept of accountability. Did you ever think about it in those terms? But that's really what it is. It's whoever sets up the terms of the covenant, that's the the structure by which uh, a person's actions uh, and and words and so on are gauged and to which you are accountable. Because if you are following those terms, um, the accountability that you you are um, engaged in there we'll see the blessings of that covenant uh, then be produced. But if you don't, you're accountable also to the curses. Covenant renewal uh, from our side of things is God granting us eyes to see that we're accountable before him and we're determined to be by his grace. If you and I wish to be revived to really love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our mind. To look at our Lord Jesus Christ in wonder and awe because He is our Savior, gave Himself on the cross for us because of His covenant accountability to His Father, to rejoice in those things, and to have that characterize our life to the point that we put aside every other thing that would get between us and our God, to lay aside the weight that so easily besets us, so that we can run with endurance the race that is set before us. We have to recognize that we are accountable to a God who is offended by sin. That's at the bedrock of true revival. Any revival that minimizes sin, that minimizes repentance, that minimizes um, uh, an ongoing walk of holiness separate from the world is not revival. No matter what other bells and whistles might be going on. So as we look at the revivals that are out in the world and we look at our own desires, let's let's judge those desires by this standard. Concern for God's testimony. Conviction by His word. A commitment to following that word and being renewed in our understanding that we are accountable a holy God and that will issue forth into some pretty incredible actions and by God's grace we'll take a look at those next week But for now we'll stop here let's pray thank you Lord for your faithfulness to us we thank you that you have entered into covenant with us through the covenant made with your son and you are faithful to it Lord, let us not think of that as a a comfort uh, to the point that we think that that just means that we can do what we like, knowing that you will never abandon us. Lord, we are accountable to you. Help us to renew our covenant bond and accountability with you by your grace. And with all of our heart and with all of our soul, let us pursue righteousness and holiness, without which no one can see the Lord. I thank you for the example that you've given to us with King Josiah. Lord, help us to live in this way ourselves and to call others to repentance and revival as well as you give us opportunity. In Christ's name we pray.